This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. In a non-lucid dream, your prefrontal cortex is completely deactivated. This is where your sense of self lives, your sense of agency, your sense of I am having experience. And because you don't know you're dreaming, that's switched off when you're dreaming. It's having a little rest. But when you become lucid, the actual neural correlates of lucid dreaming are the prefrontal cortex switching back on. From the brain's point of view, wakefulness is not predicated on having your eyes open. It's predicated on activation of certain brain regions. So as far as the brain's concerned, once that prefrontal cortex switches on, you're not dreaming, you're awake. Welcome to series 11 of the Not Perfect Podcast, a show that's here to share conversations with world-leading thinkers to help us grow, stretch our minds, thrive, and heal from within. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, a best-selling author of Happy Not Perfect and entrepreneur. I've spent the last decade exploring how we can live better, support our mental health better, expand our consciousness, and feel full even when things feel turbulent. I hope you enjoy the show. Today's guest is Charlie Morley, a best-selling author and teacher of lucid dreaming, shadow integration, and mindfulness of dream and sleep. He has been lucid dreaming for over 20 years and was authorized to teach in 2008. Since then, he has written four books, which have been translated into 15 languages and has run workshops and retreats in more than 20 countries. He's spoken at both Oxford and Cambridge universities, the Ministry of Defence Mindfulness Symposium, the Houses of Parliament and the Mindfulness Association annual conferences. Charlie has been the lead consultant on scientific studies into lucid dreaming at both Swansea University and the Institute of Noetic Science. In 2009, he created the first Lucid Dreaming for Therapists course, which trained a group of hypnotherapists, meditation teachers and therapists to use lucid dreaming with their clients. In 2018, he was awarded a Winston Churchill Fellowship Grant to research PTSD treatment in military veterans and continues to teach people with trauma-affected sleep a set of practices called Mindfulness of Dream and Sleep. His 2021 book, Wake Up to Sleep, is a practical guide to these practices. What is a favorite quote you return to often and why? That would be a quote from my Buddhist teacher, Lama Yeshe Rinpoche. Uh, a few years ago, maybe coming up to 10 years ago now, I was having an interview with him, like a formal interview. And I asked him, what's the point of all this lucidity training? Not just lucid dreaming, but, you know, kind of training the mind to be awake at all times. And he said something that I feel sums up not only the path of lucid dreaming, but kind of the whole of life, really. He said, more awake, more aware, more aware, more kind, more kind. That's the point. And I was like, yeah, that's the point, right? Of all of this training is kindness. It's not about having mystical experiences. It's not about ego tripping on Instagram and taking a selfie of our, of our Kundalini awakening. It's about being more kind. And all of these practices, that's the point. The more awake we are, the more aware we are. The more aware we are, the kinder we are to ourselves and others. 
Thank you. What a beautiful way to start this interview. What's a life lesson you've been reminded of and why? <laughs> There's a theme emerging here. The life lesson I've been reminded of is, is be kind. Be kind. You never know what people are working with and you never know when you're going to mm. see them again. You know, I lived in a Buddhist temple for seven years and living in a Buddhist center is a bit like living in, in Wembley football stadium if you love football. You know, you'd get to meet all the players, you'd go to all the matches, you'd know all the coaches, you'd be really immersed in, in the subject, right? And I did, did have all of that. But what I really loved was when there was a teacher who'd come to stay at the Buddhist center to teach, whether it was a psychologist or a Buddhist lama or whatever, I would always try and see if I could get to dinner with them in the evenings when often they'd be taken out, you know, to get some food because... I wasn't that interested in, or I was, but it, it's not that valuable seeing somebody sit on a high throne and talk about compassion for all beings and meditation stuff. I want to see what they're like in a restaurant and I want to see how they treat the waiters because that's where you see who counts. How does somebody treat the people who are serving you? Not when they're writing their books and when they're expounding their spiritual theses, but how are they to the people who are serving them? And on almost all occasions, I was absolutely you know, really happy to see how beautifully these teachers treated staff. And then on a couple of occasions, I wasn't. And that really stuck to me. I was like, wow, that person's not walking the walk. You know, they're talking the talk. But I just saw how rude you were to that waiter or how dismissive you were to that person who was, um, you know, the Uber driver that we took to get there or something like that. So be kind. That's the life lesson. And I fall into that trap so many times. So many times I've been unkind to myself and others, and almost every time it's come back and bit me on the ass. So now every day I try and tell myself, if you have a choice, choose kindness. Gosh, I think we all need to be reminded of that because it is so easy, even unintentionally, to get wrapped up in the fire you're trying to put out, whether yeah. it be so macro or micro, and then, yes, you yes, know, yes. we kind of just get slightly off center and we're then not the people that we want to be for whatever reason. So I love that reminder. And how do you understand the soul? I'm not sure I'm in, in much of a position to answer that question, but I'll try. You know, in Buddhism, which is the philosophy that I guess I'm most aware of and steeped in, there isn't this concept of soul, actually, but there is a concept of this kind of universal mind, of this oneness of all minds. So I guess if we look at it as that, then what I can say about it is it's definitely not personal. Definitely, if there's a soul, it's transpersonal. It's probably that which connects us into the transpersonal realms. And I'd probably say it's definitely beyond subjective awareness and into kind of objective, total awareness. And... In Buddhism, we have this term Buddha nature, which is a really lovely term, which is kind of like the opposite of original sin. So you know, like Catholicism is like the original sin, right? You're just born and you're already a sinner. In Buddhism, there's pretty much the direct opposite, which is Buddha nature, which is when you are born, you are actually already a fully enlightened Buddha. And the spiritual path isn't so much about becoming enlightened. It's about removing the veils of ignorance that prevent us seeing we are already enlightened. So maybe that soul in its truest nature, that Buddha nature, that part of us that is always divine. Why do you think we lose that feeling of belonging so quickly? Again, the Buddhist view on this is this idea of ignorance. But here, ignorance doesn't mean like not being educated. Ignorance is defined as not knowing what truly is. And there's this fundamental mistake that we make. And as children, we're not born into that mistake because the child only really self-delineates itself at like, a certain amount of weeks, like a couple of months in. So the first few months, it is in this state of oneness. And once we see other, once we see self and other, there's now something to protect us and there's something to keep away from other. 
everything begins there. And to actually move this to lucid dreaming, the cool thing about a lucid dream is that once you get lucid in the dream, you have that experience of oneness because you're in the dream and you're like, oh, I'm in my own head right now. Everything is me. So suddenly if this were a dream, I'd be like, whoa, that's not the external poppy. That's my inner poppy. I wonder what she represents to me. And suddenly all boundaries of like age, gender, race will just be completely eliminated because I'd know that you're me and I'm you. And this experience of oneness, like it's very difficult to suffer in a lucid dream, in a fully lucid dream. Like if you cut your arm off, it doesn't exist. You know, the arm doesn't Mm. exist. You know, the knife doesn't exist. If someone insults you in a lucid dream, it's kind of like being insulted by a little, by a toddler. You kind of laugh. You're like, oh, it's just me insulting me, you know? Very hard to suffer really when you're in that state of oneness. And it makes me think that maybe all these enlightened masters who've woken up in this dream, the reason why they're so happy all the time and in the state of compassion is because they're like we are in our lucid dreams. You know, I spend a lot of my lucid dream just running around hugging everyone because I'm like, whoa, you're me. I'm you. This is amazing. Let's just hug and embracing everything because everything's me. So maybe we get that experience in a lucid dream. Now, I can't wait to dive into lucid dreaming and start from the basics because in your book, you separate dreaming to lucid dreaming. There is a difference. And what is that difference? So a lucid dream by definition is any dream in which you're actively aware of the fact you're dreaming as the dream is happening. So essentially, if you have to ask, was it a lucid dream or was it not? It probably wasn't because in a fully lucid dream, you know it, you are sound asleep, but part of the brain or or the awareness within the mind has reactivated. And with that, you're like, whoa, this is all a dream. I'm actually dreaming right now. And for most people, the first few times that happens, it's so exciting. They wake up with the excitement, but once you can train it and stay in there, you realize like, whoa, I'm actually in a dream right now. So anytime you've been in a dream and you've had what I call the aha moment where you're like, aha, I'm dreaming, that's a lucid dream. Whether it's a sexy dream, whether it's a nightmare, whether it's a pleasant dream, whether it's unpleasant, doesn't matter. The defining characteristic is having the aha moment, knowing that you're dreaming as you're dreaming. And then in most cases, the ability to direct the dream at will. So you can basically choose what to do. You can fly, you can have sex with movie stars, you can do your spiritual practice, all of that. (laughs) Why did you begin to dive into this as your kind of chosen area of focus? Because you've been studying Buddhism for 20 years and you could have chosen just pure meditation. What was it about lucid dreaming that caught your attention? Well, I got into lucid dreaming before Buddhism. The only thing I remember for sure is just before my 12th birthday, because I asked for this thing called a Nova Dreamer, which is like this electronic sleep mask that you strap on your face And it's got sensors that recognize REM, rapid eye movement, and then sends flashes of red light with these lights that are like bright enough to penetrate your eyelids, but not bright enough to wake you up. So they say, you basically dream about traffic lights, like red traffic lights for kind of two weeks. Then eventually you're like, fuck, the traffic lights must be the light coming through my eyelids. And you have lucid dreams. Um, Now, I wanted one of those my 12th birthday. I, I never got it. My dad confirmed that memory. So I know that that's probably the youngest memory I've got. But I don't really remember practicing lucid dream at that age. I remember practicing it at 15, 16. I remember buying books, getting them from the library at school, doing the techniques. And then I started having these experiences. But, you know, at 15, if you start having loads of lucid dreams where you're in a state as real as this, you've like gained access to the matrix, but there's no rules of society that apply. You know, I just used it for sex mainly and being really good at skateboarding. But I would kind of go into lucid dream, just have loads of sex. I wasn't having much sex in the waking state at 15. And I thought that was it. And I was like, whoa, this is so cool. I would tell my mates about it. Dude, you want to learn this lucid dream thing? You can just have loads of sex and this kind of stuff. And then a few years later, I got into Buddhism. And 
Tibetan Buddhism, especially this thing called dream yoga, which is like the spiritual practice of lucid dreaming. You don't have to read many books about Tibetan Buddhism before you find this term dream yoga. And I said, what's dream yoga? And then I start kind of looking it up and it says that it's this like spiritual practice of lucid dreaming. So that kind of piqued my interest in Buddhism. And then a few other things happened and I had, well, a few other things. I had a full on near death experience, actually. Uh, I was like partying really hard and I had a drugs overdose, this classic like tunnel of light. And I got this choice at the end, whether I want to live or die. It was really intense experience. After that, I had really bad panic attacks in the daytime, uh, really bad anxiety and kind of agoraphobia. Uh, and at night, I was having really bad nightmares. And I managed to cure the nightmares through lucid dreaming. Pretty much the first time I did anything that wasn't just sex and fantasy was when I, I cured the nightmares. So suddenly I was getting into Buddhism because I had this anxiety. And then I just had this major healing experience with lucid dreaming. And then it turns out Buddhism's into lucid dreaming. So all these things came together. And then I ended up living in a Buddhist center for, for a while and um, studying with these Buddhist teachers. And then my practice really took off. But I had a grounding, you know, because from like 15 to 18, when I got into Buddhism, I had three years already of like being, getting pretty good at lucid dreaming. But then when I caught the Buddhist teachings, it was like a skyrocket. All those books I'd read counted for nothing once I received the first instruction from the man who would become my Buddhist teacher. What I found fascinating in your first book is when you write that a lot of these practices are kept secret. You can't learn them outside retreats. And some of this information has obviously been kept secret for maybe centuries. Why do you think there's been such protection around the techniques and teachings in lucid dreaming? Okay, so it kind of depends what lineage of Buddhism, like not all of them are so restrictive on dream yoga, but the particular Buddhist lineage that I was in, like kind of unfortunately, was one of these ones that was really strict about the lucid dream teachings, because they were seen as such powerful teachings that to offer them kind of without the support structure of retreat and the kind of Buddhist infrastructure, uh, they might not be so helpful for people. So I asked my teacher this, I asked Lama Yeshe, I said, if lucid dreaming is so great, like you're telling me, why aren't we teaching everybody this? And he actually didn't say, because it's been secret. He said, Charlie, Buddhism is still very young in this country. I'm still trying to get people to meditate 20 minutes a day, let alone wake up in the night, do this, lucid dream, do that. And I was like, oh, it's as simple as that. He goes, yes, now you teach them how to do it in the night. From his point of view, it didn't seem to be that they were secret. It seemed to be that the time wasn't right. And mm -hmm. something happened, you know, 15 years ago. A lot of things happen, like the movie Inception came out when the biggest studies in lucid dreaming happened in the next two years. You know, all these books came out, including mine. It just seemed to be something happened. What are the benefits of lucid dreaming? Why should people be take note of it? So the kind of elevator pitch that I often give is whatever you can treat through hypnotherapy, you can treat through lucid dreaming. And that's pretty solid. So what might you use hypnotherapy for? Confidence issues, post-traumatic stress disorder, childhood trauma, increasing confidence, sports performance, all of those things you can work with through lucid dreaming. The added bonus of lucid dreaming is it's a powerful spiritual practice too. Uh, within the Sufi tradition, within Tibetan Buddhist tradition, within the Toltec Mexica, Mexican shamanic tradition, they will have a long history of using lucid dreaming to be able to kind of further your spiritual development. Not only because you get an extra third of your life to do it because you're asleep for a third of your life, but in the Buddhist world, it's said that in the lucid dream, you have seven times the power of consciousness. So you have 700% more power in your mind when you're lucid than you do in the waking state. So they say that if you go into the lucid dream and practice like self-reiki or healing or something, or if you go into the lucid dream and integrate 
your post-traumatic stress disorder. Or if you go into the lucid dream and work with your food addiction, then that's like 700% more powerful than doing it in the waking state. And it does often feel that way. You know, we've had very, very powerful results come through from that study we did last year, uh, people with PTSD. In fact, we had by the end of the week, we had a group of 55 people. We had one week to teach them lucid dreaming. By the end of the week, 35 of those 55 people no longer had PTSD. And that study gets published this month. And the results were so remarkable that the scientists actually went back and triple checked the numbers because they went, this, this can't be right. You can't do this in a week. And then once we completed the report, uh, we instantly got given, well, not instantly, but very soon got given another 150,000 to continue the research because they were like, this is nuts. This is, this is very, very remarkable results. That is absolutely extraordinary. Yeah. Before we dive into some of the techniques, a lot of people have fear around dreams, I guess, especially night terrors. In your eyes, why do we have night terrors? Why do you think dreaming exists? Okay, so night terrors are slightly different from nightmares. So let's look at nightmares first. A nightmare is like a dream that's shouting. You know, it's shouting for your attention. It's saying, you know, unintegrated energy is here. So in many ways, thank goodness for nightmares. Without them, how would we know where our unintegrated trauma lies? So the best thing you can do if you want to reduce the frequency or volume of your nightmares is to let them know you're listening. And then they won't need to shout so much. So don't do what the new age people say, or often the new age people say, which is like, don't write down your nightmares, man. You'll manifest it. Or never talk a nightmare out loud. It's such fucking bullshit. Mm. The opposite. If you have a nightmare, write it down. Mm. Share it with a friend or trust or therapist or trusted friend. Draw a picture about it. Make a poem about it. Do everything you can to tell the nightmare, dude, I'm listening. So no need mm. to shout so much. And then the nightmare may decrease. The other thing a nightmare is it's a sign of a healing mind. You have a powerful therapist in your mind. And when you dream, that internal therapist is working through your stuff. And a nightmare is like a powerful therapy session. This is why nightmares recur. You know, if you wake yourself from a nightmare, either because it's so shocking or, or that you actually become lucid in the nightmare and you're like, wake up, wake up. The nightmare necessarily has to recur, not because you're damaged, not because your mind hates you, but actually because your inner therapist loves you. And it's like, wait, our therapy session got cut short. I'm sorry, but I have to ask you these, these same therapeutic questions. So nightmares are really good news. Without them, God, we'd move into, into psychosis every time we had a minor mental wound. Nightmares are the way we heal. They are the sign of a healing mind. What about night terrors? Yeah, so night terrors are actually more like a kind of a nighttime panic attack. So mm. often in a night terror, the person might be kind of sitting upright in bed. Their eyes might even be open. They might be screaming. Mm. But once they either move out of that state or you calm them down if you're with them and say, what were you dreaming about? Often they'll say nothing because they're not in the dream state. Night terrors mm. happen in deep sleep, moving into the hypnopompic, which is the waking up state. So actually the nightmare integration techniques like lucid dreaming don't work well for night terrors. But what it does is regulating the ANS, the autonomic nervous system. So if before bed, you can do like slow, deep breathing, something like coherent breathing, four or five breaths a minute for at least 20 minutes before bed. Those effects will last two to three hours. And most night terrors happen in the first two to three hours of sleep. So if you can regulate your nervous system during the daytime, that will affect the frequency of night terrors. It's a body expressing anxiety and panic rather than actually a nightmare that has caused it in most cases. Um, you write that if you really want to know your own psychology, look at your dreams as your dreams don't lie. Would you mind expanding on that a little bit? It's just that. Absolutely. Eight years ago, I wrote that and I still absolutely believe it. 
you know, if I was a detective and I really wanted to know who is Poppy and I snuck into your house and I, I found your daytime diary and I thought, oh, this will tell me who she is. She's meeting this person. She's in love with this person. She, she wants to do this with her life. Actually, if I could find your dream diary, which says what's really going on here, who, he, who she's really in love with, what really are her triggers and her traumas and her desires and her wants and her fears, you'll find that all in the dream diary far more truthfully than you'll find in the waking diary. Um, which is why be aware how vulnerable it is to share your dreams with someone and kind of what an honor it is. If you mm. choose to share your dreams with someone, it's as if you've, you've gone into your chest, you've taken out your beating heart and it's like offering your heart to someone. So if you do share your dreams with someone, and even more importantly, if you hear the dreams of another, really hold that space carefully because it's someone telling you the real truth of who they are. And that might be quite shocking for them. Often I've heard people tell me dreams and as they're telling me, they kind of realize what it's about and they become very embarrassed. Like, oh, it's this. And then my dad turned up and then my mom, oh, and I'm like, it's okay. You know, I see that. I, I see where you think that dream is going and I see where you think what that dream is pointing at. And yeah, maybe that's right. I can't tell you. you know, no one can interpret your dreams except you. You can be a nice sounding board for someone. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Yeah, dream interpretation is really interesting because I guess, you know, I've often found myself on Google looking, reading interpretations. Do you suggest people step away from Google? Kind of. You know, let's say me and you, Poppy, tonight we both dream of cats, right? Now, what you don't know is perhaps as a child, I was attacked by a cat. So actually, for me, dream about cats is a symbol of childhood trauma. But what I don't know about you is that you love those lolcat videos on YouTube. So for you, cats are a symbol of joy and playfulness, right? Mm. If we both dream about a cat, Google ain't going to help us. What I need to know is what the cats mean to me. And you need to know what the cats mean to you. So yes, dream dictionaries are great, but become your own dream dictionary. Start keeping your own in the back of your dream diary. You know, get to know mm. what, you know, I know clearly what my brother represents. A few years ago, my brother represented materialism. I knew it. Anytime he appeared in a dream, he was my inner representation of materialism. He would have said, what does my brother stand for? I'd have said that. So I kind of knew it was that. So let's say I was having a dream that I was fighting my brother. I wouldn't wake up in the morning and think, oh God, I don't like my brother. I think, oh, I had a dream about battling materialism. Oh yeah, maybe I shouldn't have had that late night ASOS session where I spent all that money. Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> And then maybe the next night I had this weird dream about like kissing my brother and I wake up and I'm like, oh God, I just fancy my brother. That's weird. No, get beyond it. Look at the symbolism, kissing in union, coming together, showing love to materialism. Oh, okay. So maybe the ASOS session wasn't so bad then if I had that dream after it. 
You know, you need to look at your own personal interpretations. Uh, so anyone who tells you what your dreams mean, run a mile, especially if they're charging you for it. How is death and dreaming connected? Because this is something you also talk about. Okay, so in Tibetan Buddhism, as well as in Sufism, as well as in the Mexican Toltec Mexica tradition, there's this link between death and dreams. So I look at the Buddhist one, the one I know the best. In Buddhism, it's believed that when you die, you're reincarnated, right? Which most people know. What they might not know is that when you die, you're not just like instantly reborn into a new body. You have this kind of holding period called the bardo, which is where everybody has a kind of a, a classic a near-death experience out of body kind of astral projection experience where your mind separates from the body and it flips inwardly. And you have this kind of dreamlike experience. It's not literally a dream, but it's the mind flipped inwardly, immersed in its own projection. And this is called the after-death bardo. And you're in this for a period of days before that consciousness then enters into a new body. So you have this weird kind of in-between state. Now, that in-between state is said to be dreamlike and hallucinatory. It's not a dream, but it's dreamlike. So the Buddhist teachings reckon that if you want to know what your mind will be like at death, look at how it is when you sleep and dream. Now, most of us sleep completely unconsciously. We black out and we are not lucid in our dreams. So unfortunately, but probably quite realistically, that's how most of us die too. It's not all white light and, and, and fluffy bunnies. Mm. Most of us are just out for the count. We just kind of faint and then we're up and, oh, wow, back on the, the treadmill of samsara again, apparently. But if you can train yourself to have recognized dreams as dreams, specifically through the practice of lucid dreaming, not a different Buddhist version of it, but specifically through the practice of lucid dreaming that everyone can do, then apparently that creates a habit in your mind that can recognize illusion, can go, wait, I'm dreaming, aha. And then when you die, apparently that habit of mind is kind of stamped into your mind stream. So when the dreamlike apparitions of the after-death bardo state arise, rather than going, I'm dreaming, you go, aha, I'm dead. And from the Buddhist point of view, if you can recognize the mind at death, if you can become lucid in the process of dying, that's like the highest achievement, the highest spiritual accomplishment. And you can recognize your Buddha nature and become enlightened. So when you talk to a Buddhist Lama about non-lucid dreams, they often kind of glaze over there. Be like, oh, yeah, whatever. But if you talk about your lucid dreams, they'll sit bolt upright because they'll be like, wow, you know, I had a lucid dream. That's really good for the most important moment of your life, death. How fascinating, because I, I couldn't believe the research that suggested that brain activity is the same during a lucid dream as it is in waking life. Yeah. So lucid dreams is actually like you're doing it. Yeah. So this is really interesting. So in a non-lucid dream, your prefrontal cortex is completely deactivated. This is where your sense of self lives, your sense of agency, your sense of I am having experience. And because you don't know you're dreaming, that's switched off when you're dreaming, it's having a little rest. But when you become lucid, the actual neural correlates of lucid dreaming are the prefrontal cortex switching back on. And once that switches on, as far as the brain is concerned, you are awake. Now, this is an interesting philosophical question. If you're into the idea of we all be just heads in jars in someone's laboratory. From, a, from the brain's point of view, wakefulness is not predicated on having your eyes open. Mm. It's predicated on activation of certain brain regions. So as far as the brain's concerned, once that prefrontal cortex switches on, you're not dreaming, you're awake. And because of that, the brain will lay down neural pathways in exactly the same way as it would in the waking state. And that's the real kicker here. If you spend all of your non-lucid dreams dreaming about playing football, playing soccer, um, you're not going to be any better at soccer the next day. You might integrate the memory when you have a soccer, but you're not going to make any major improvements. What they found is if you become lucid 
And then in your lucid dream, you choose to practice soccer in the lucid dream. You literally get better at it the next day, not just psychologically, but physiologically. They can see the brain changing. And I was in part of one of these studies where they wanted martial artists. And we had to go into the lucid dream and practice this martial arts kick sequence, then see if we got better. And 81.3% of the 21 participants got better at martial arts by training in the lucid dream. So once you're lucid, it's not like dreaming it, it's like doing it. Now, how does that relate to other stuff? Well, that's cool. You can get better at football, better at martial arts, all that kind of stuff. But imagine if in the lucid dream, you integrate a trauma. Imagine if in the lucid dream, you face a fear. Imagine if the lucid dream, you integrate the core wound that's led to the anxiety and depression. When you wake up in the morning, the brain doesn't think you dreamt it. The brain thinks you actually engage that integration. And one of the stories that I'm sharing in the talk I'm giving here in um, Estonia for Mind Valley is um, this young guy called Matt who cured his depression. 15 years of depression. He was heavily medicated. He'd done three different types of therapy. He became lucid. And in the lucid dream, he called out, show me the cause of my depression. And his grandmother appeared and told him, your depression is caused by not mourning properly for me when I died when you were 10 years old. And he said, when he heard her say it, it was like, oh my, of course, it made complete sense. Um, because he, he, was, he repressed his emotions. He wasn't allowed to mourn properly. He felt a lot of guilt around it. Then in the lucid dream, he hugged his grandma and um, he woke up and his depression never came back. Now, he waited two years before he emailed me because I said something in my books about not jumping to conclusions if you've had a lucid dream healing and you know, give it time. He said, I wanted to wait two years before I told you so you can put it in your next book and say he's two years clear. But yeah, two years, no meds, no depression, uh, no brain fog, all in his words from one lucid dream healing. Now, that can't be just psychological. He must have done something to the, to the structure of his brain, especially he had clinical depression. You know? He made the point that, that he had a girlfriend, he had a job that he loved, he had friends. But with clinical depression, it doesn't matter the causes and conditions. You know, If there's a part of your brain that is just not pumping out the dopamine you need to feel happiness, you can't think your way out of that. You know? So for the change that he had, I would, be, I would love to see his brain before and after. I'd almost be certain that lucid dream did something to his dopamine receptors. Do you think then lucid dreaming works better with people who are undergoing some sort of therapy or exercise to gain more self-awareness in the conscious state? Because then you're aware of the thing that you could integrate into lucid dreaming. The th- you know, for example, with this man... Yeah he kind of knew it was this unresolved grief was the other thing he had to put on the spotlight when he was lucid dreaming. Yes, absolutely. So I think you can get so much benefit from lucid dreaming just by yourself. But um, three years ago, I ran the first lucid dream training for therapists, especially for psychotherapists, hypnotherapists, stuff like that. And since then, not just through that training, but just this kind of increased awareness there is in lucid dreaming, there are a lot of therapists now, uh, especially younger therapists who are just coming into practice now. They grew up with lucid dreaming. They don't think it's woo, it's not far out, it's not new age, it's scientifically verified. Um, And there's now something called LDT, lucid dream therapy. It's quite big in America. It's got a couple of practitioners in the UK, but not many. And it is standard Western one-on-one psychotherapy. Uh, But, you know, between, you know, I'll see you next Wednesday for appointment. And before next Wednesday, if you have a lucid dream, go into your lucid dream and ask this question or try this. So yeah, that integration of waking state therapy and lucid dreaming is so powerful. So let's talk about the techniques and some of the techniques that I tried from reading your book Mm -hmm. is the weird technique and then also looking at your hands. Um, Would you mind explaining those and why they're helpful when you're just starting out on your journey of lucid dreaming? 
Yeah. So the weird technique is that anytime you experience anything dreamlike during the daytime, anything weird, a weird synchronicity, anything strange or unexpected, then you ask yourself, am I dreaming? And you do something that you're going to repeat in the dream. So for example, let's say, I don't know, suddenly something fell off the, the shelves in this hotel room. I said, oh, that's weird. I'd ask myself, could I be dreaming? Now, I know I'm not dreaming. I'm just playing. I'm not psychotic, but I'm just, you know, suspending disbelief. Saying, oh, could I be dreaming? Well, if I was dreaming, how could I check? And one of the ways you can check your dreaming is to see if you can make your finger extend like that. Now, in the waking state, I can do this all I like, but my finger is not going to extend. But in the dream state, if I do that, the finger goes whoop and gets really long. So the weird technique is asking yourself every time something weird happens in the day, could I be dreaming? And then doing what's called a reality check. Uh, a kind of repeated action that you'll then try again in the dream. And they can be really good ways of not only boosting your awareness in the waking state, but also having dreams where you do that. You know, if you spend your whole day dreaming about packing boxes, what do you dream about that night? If you packing boxes, right? So if you spend your whole day asking yourself, could I be dreaming and doing this certain hand check, then at night you're likely to dream about it. But in the dream, the finger will extend and you can get lucid. So that's a good technique. Well, can I share someone's leading up to that? Please do. Please do. Okay. So there's uh, often for podcasts, I have this thing called the three Ds, which are like, no, the four Ds, let's do that, uh, which are kind of four little techniques people can try today. First one is dream recall. So unless you regularly remember your dream, it's going to be hard to have lucid dreams. First thing to know about this is everybody dreams, but maybe you don't remember it. So how to remember it? Well, as you fall asleep and you go through the hypnotic state called the hypnagogic state, be reciting over and over in your mind an affirmation to remember your dreams. Something like, tonight I remember my dreams, I have excellent dream recall. Tonight I remember my dreams, I have excellent dream recall. So fall asleep doing that dream recall affirmation. The next D is when you wake up in the morning or if it's in the middle of the night when you wake up to pee, write down your dreams in a dream diary. The act of writing down your dreams solidifies an unconscious process into the conscious mind that will help you become lucid because every time you write down a dream, you start to see the patterns emerging in your dream. Like after a week of keeping a dream diary, you might see, wow, I always dream of that beach I used to go to as a kid, or I always dream of my dead grandmother, or I always dream of being back at school, even though I haven't been at school for like 20 years or whatever. You'll start to see these patterns emerging. And that becomes a third D, dream signs. By keeping a dream diary, you start to see these patterns. And then you can tell yourself before bed, well, if between now and breakfast, when I wake up, if I see my dead grandmother, 100%, I must be dreaming. Or if between now and breakfast, I find myself back at school, I must be dreaming. So you set what are called lucidity triggers, which are these ways of kind of planting mnemonics, these kind of memory triggers uh, in your mind. So then they'll be activated in the dream. And then the fourth D is dream planning. Work out what you want to do in your lucid dream before you get there. Because otherwise, your first lucid dream, you have all this effort to get lucid, or you get lucid tonight just from listening to it. It happens. But let's say you get lucid tonight. You're like, I'm dreaming, I'm dreaming. Oh, God, what did he talk about? Oh, God, integrating trauma, working with depression, having sex with movies. <laughs> oh, what do I do? And then you're awake. You missed it. So work out what you want to do before you get lucid. Mm. And if you can have a really good idea of what you want to do, and if it's like really powerful and really healing, you can get lucid just from that intention. If your dream plans are, oh, I just want to kind of get lucid because it might be cool. It's not very strong. You know, you're not kind of using your Buddha nature there. Whereas if you say, I want a lucid dream to, you know, integrate the, the core wound of my depression, or I want a lucid dream to work with my addiction to food, or I want a lucid dream to move beyond lack of self-worth and into my fullest expression of myself, your mind, your Buddha nature, your soul is going to be like, yes, 
we want that one. So it's going to help you get lucid. You're going to have all of your, your inner guides on side, right? If you choose to do something really cool in your lucid dream. Whereas if you choose to just kind of mess about, then you can still do it, but you won't have that full kind of backup of your, your, um, your inner guides. You've totally solved the reason why I think my lucid dreaming didn't really work last time because I did the technique where I looked at my hands and then suddenly I was waking myself up too much because I guess my prefrontal cortex was like, boom. Oh my God, we read a book. Ah, la, la, la. Oh my God, I read you doing Charlie. Oh my God, I'm like, oh my God, release the dreaming. And it was almost like, you know, when you get nervous and you just completely. Yeah, stage fright, absolutely. It was stage, it was lucid dreaming stage fright. <laughs> but I think if I'd had more of an intention, like, ah, as soon as I'm lucid dreaming, ask this question, I think. Yeah. Do you find yourself then go back into a deep sleep after you've lucid dreamt or do you find that as soon as you're kind of engaging in your lucid dream you then naturally wake up most of my lucid dreams end with me waking up because something will happen that's so exciting or shocking it will wake me up Mm. like often if you're like working with a part a wounded part of you then I might always go to hug them and then the hug that the expression of love is so intense it'll wake me up or like a lot of my lucid dreams end in tears not always tears of sadness often just tears of joy and then the tears wake me up or you just get too excited. So you can just go from a lucid dream and then kind of lose your awareness and slip into a non-lucid dream and keep sleeping. But most people wake up from a lucid dream. The, yeah, the problem is not how to wake up. The problem is how to stay in there. Are there any things you encourage people to avoid that reduces their lucid dream? I don't know, alcohol or whatever. Yeah, so weed and alcohol are the two worst ones. So like uh, not CBD which is the kind of healing aspect of, 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 of marijuana uh, that can actually help with sleep. It doesn't really help with lucid dream. It can help you to get to sleep, which is where lucid dreams happen. But like the THC, which is the stuff in weed that actually gets you high. That's really bad for dreaming. Not only does it actually affect the short-term memory that remembers your dreams, but it actually makes your dream period shorter. So if you smoke loads of weed, your dream periods will be shorter than somebody who doesn't smoke weed. And if you stop smoking weed after like months or years of smoking it, it's almost like you have this backlog of dreams. So people often have crazy intense dreams, even perhaps some nightmares. And it's not that they're having more dreams than usual. It's that all of those dream periods that have been cut short by their weed smoking, the brain's almost kind of taken note and like clocked them up. And then when you stop smoking, it's like, boom, gives you loads of dreams. But yeah, so weed's not very good. Alcohol's not very good. Not getting a lot of sleep. You know, if you only get Mm. six hours sleep, maybe you're only getting like one and a half hours of REM a night. If you get eight or nine hours sleep, you're going to be getting two and a half to three hours of REM a night. If you get 10 hours sleep, you'll be getting like up to four hours REM. So the more sleep you get, the bigger the playing field for lucidity. If you can get two extra hours of sleep, you double your chances of having a lucid dream. That's like the best incentive for a lion I've ever heard. I could talk to you for hours about this. It's so fascinating and a topic I really know so little about. So I'm so grateful for your work. Where is the best place for people to find you? And do you have any courses available or like what is the kind of minimum to the maximum people can do to really get into this? Sure. Yes. You can find me everywhere on Instagram and Facebook and my website, charliemorley.com. Yeah, I'm on Instagram a lot too. And yeah, if you go to my website, all the courses are there. So there are like online courses that you can do, like pre-recorded online courses. There are live online courses you can do, especially for people with stress or trauma affected sleep. Um, and then there's the live workshops, which have been on ice for the last two years, but now I'm back. So I'm doing, doing like a full tour this year. So yeah, you'll find that all on, on my website and Instagram page and stuff like that. 
Amazing. Well, we'll put links to that in the show notes for anyone who's interested. And of course, do check out the books as they are just filled to the brain with lots of different information about this and and so much more. Thank you so much for being on the show. This has been truly fascinating. I'm obsessed. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Great questions. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Not Perfect Podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would deeply appreciate it if you wouldn't mind subscribing and leaving a review and perhaps maybe sending it to a friend who also might enjoy this episode. I can't tell you how grateful I am for those that share this podcast on their social media or with friends because it helps the show reach more listeners. I'd absolutely love to hear from you. So if you've had any thoughts or you want a specific guest coming up in future episodes just let me know shoot me a message on instagram or twitter it's just at poppy jamie and so until next time stay flexible stay true to you and stay leaning into love here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.